0: and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the catechism memory work. What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ, our dear Lord, dealt with us himself. And the Bible memory work. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us psalm 103:12. let us pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. So we're going to talk about uh, the Lord's Supper now, sacrament of the altar, and this will get us through the um, what's traditionally called the six chief parts of luther's small catechism so you have uh we talked about this when we first started this study but the catechism actually has nine parts and for some reason we kind of ignore the last three a lot of the time but i think the last three are actually kind of important um which are daily prayers christian questions and answers and the table of duties we already talked about the daily prayers section when we talked about the lord's prayer we kind of connected those together and uh Similarly, here when we talk about the Lord's Supper, um, we're also going to talk about. This is on page 326, by the way. Um, we said that earlier. Uh, we're also going to talk about Christian questions and their answers, uh, which is on on page 329. So um, you can kind of keep an eye out for that as well. It'll it will we'll do that last. But uh, really, these two things are connected. So the last three. Or sections of the small catechism connect back to the first six. So you have um, daily prayers, right? So you learn how to pray and what prayer is and the Lord's Prayer. And then daily prayers tells you, yeah, you're actually supposed to go and do this, right, in your life. And then um, the, the table of duties, right? You learn how to live in the Ten Commandments and the theology of what God wants you to do in the Ten Commandments and in the Creed. And then the table of duties encourages you yeah, I actually go and live this way, right, in my my vocations. And then in the uh, Christians and questions and their answers, right, you learn about the theology of the Lord's Supper in the sacrament of the altar section, and then the Christian questions and their answers is about actually preparing to go and receive it, right? So those last three sections of the catechism are about putting into practice what you learn in the first six uh, articles. So that's why we call it the, the six chief parts is the first six. But anyway, all that to say that the sacrament of the altar section, this will be the last section. So um, the, uh, this this will kind of get us through the um, main portion of, of the catechism. All right, so um, we talk about the sacrament of the altar. Uh, there's a couple of things that we, we want to talk about. Uh, so we want to talk about the theology of it first which the two main aspects of that are uh, the reality of the Lord's Supper so what is the Lord's Supper and then what is its benefit All right so we did this kind of with baptism when we said what is baptism and then what does it do All right same thing with the Lord's Supper we we want to talk about those two things and that's kind of how Luther splits it up um, then we want to talk about uh, the uh, what what kind of the biggest issue is, I think, for Lutherans, modern day Lutherans, especially in the LCMS and the Lord's Supper, which is uh, closed communion. We want to talk about what that is and why we practice it. Um, and then and then we want to talk about the uh, practical aspects of of receiving the Lord's Supper, which is going to get us into Christian questions and their answers. So we're going to be talking about things like preparing to receive it. Um, talking about things like, uh, I don't know, like the common cup, for instance, right? Stuff like that. Uh, like the, the kind of practical aspects of, of receiving the Lord's Supper. Okay, So that's kind of where we're going is uh, we'll do those things. In in that order, theology, close communion, and then practical. So let's jump into the catechism then, uh, which is, starts us off with this question of reality. What is the sacrament of the altar? And Luther says it this way, it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Okay, so remember that augustinian definition of sacrament that we've been working with when we talked about baptism and, and confession that a sacrament is something that's instituted by christ for the forgiveness of sins and attached to a physical element And so here, Luther again draws on that definition of sacrament uh, to show you what this sacrament of the altar, right? Um, it's, oh, it's kind of interesting, by the way, right? The Lord's Supper is, uh, so baptism generally is just called baptism, right? Sometimes we'll call it like the washing of regeneration if we want to be fancy or something like that. But uh, normally the baptism is just called baptism. But the sacrament of the altar is called like six different things. Right? So we have the sacrament of the altar, which is what's in the catechism, but no one ever really says outside of the catechism. Um, but it's funny because that's what's actually in the catechism. And then we have the Lord's Supper. Right. Uh, we also have uh, communion. Right. And uh, uh, the other popular one, um, I don't say it much, and I haven't heard anyone here say it much, but the other popular one is uh, Eucharist. Has anyone heard this? Eucharist. Um, So the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. It's a Greek word, Eucharisto, to give thanks. And uh, why is it called the Eucharist sometimes? Because after supper, when Jesus had given thanks, right, uh, he he gave them the bread and the wine. So um, sometimes it's called the Eucharist is uh, one one term for it. And that's kind of coming back into vogue is, uh, is that term in Lutheran circles. So anyway, it's kind of interesting, but yeah, communion, the Lord's supper, uh, the sacrament of the altar, they're all the same things, right? And they all have kind of different, a little bit different connotations, but, but all the same thing. And, uh, they they do, they do kind of do teach us different things, right? So communion emphasizes that we're, uh, in fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another, uh, the Lord's Supper institutes that, or kind of indicates that this is that it's possessive, right? This is the Supper of the Lord, in that way, genitive case. And the uh, sacrament of the altar, right? That, that's the most plain one. It's the sacrament that's on the altar, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that. So, anyway, I find that interesting that we we use all these different terms. But just in case you hadn't heard all those terms before, if you ever hear any of those. It's talking about the same thing. All right, but Luther draws on this idea of sacrament, right? So it's instituted by Christ himself, and the, the physical elements are the bread and wine. And um, we're going to get into this idea of for forgiveness uh, later on, that this is what it's for. Uh, but he's what he's doing here is he's showing this this fits this definition, right? This is uh, one of these things that God, Christ has given to us to do. Now, he is then going to connect that, as Luther does, and as any good Lutheran and any good Christian should do, to the direct words of Scripture. right? And this is one of the Lutheran distinctives when it comes to the sacrament of the altar, is that we're going to turn again and again to the words of institution. that the main place we're going to go when it comes to defining our theology and the reality and the benefit of the Lord's Supper is the plain words that Jesus gives when he institutes the Lord's Supper, right? Um, The words of institution. Sometimes this is also called um, the words of our Lord, Right? So sometimes this will be the words of our Lord. And uh, if you ever see this in, I don't remember what it has in the hymnal, sometimes you'll also hear that in the Latin translation, which is the verba, which just means words, domini, which is of our Lord. Um, That's a, yeah, domini. Uh, And then sometimes that's just shortened to, People will say, the verba, right? Because these are some of the most important words uh, when it comes to our theology of the Lord's Supper, right? And these are the words that we say every week, right? When the pastor uh, consecrates, we'll talk about what consecration is later. When the pastor consecrates the sacrament of the altar, he, in the stead of Christ, says the verba, right? The words of our Lord, right? So we're going to turn again and again to to these words. So what are these words? Okay, so where is this written? And uh, we get here, the holy evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul, right? So this is interesting, by the way, that um, in the Gospels, right, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John actually does not record the words of institution, so when John is in the upper room, it's, it's, it's a really funny thing because all of John 14 through 17, Jesus is at the Last Supper, right? So John actually spends like, a, like 25% of his gospel at the Last Supper recording what Jesus is doing in the upper room, right? He washes his disciples' feet. Um, he uh, preaches to them about the Holy Spirit, and then he uh, has this high priestly prayer in John seventeen. And then and then find out in John eighteen, that's when they, they're going to the garden when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. But John doesn't actually record the words of institution, even though he spends all that time talking about the what's happening at the Last Supper. He he gives you all the other details. But what John does is in some ways he's more sacramental, if you will, than the other Gospels, right? Matthew is the one who has the uh, the institution of baptism, right? He has the great commission, but John talks about baptism way more, right? Like in John three, when he talks to Nicodemus about being washed by the water and the spirit. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. If you read John six, which is well before the actual actual Last Supper, um, he has this entire uh, after the feeding of the five thousand. Um, what's called the, in John 6, the bread of life discourse, which in one way is not about the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper hasn't been instituted yet, but on the other hand is also very much about the Lord's Supper, right? Because he says things that only make sense after he's instituted it, right? So he's kind of prophesying, if you will, but he says, In John 6, right, he says, like, unless you eat the bread of life, uh, and no, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right, you have no life in you, right? And this is where he says, I am the bread of life, right? What else can he be talking about? Um, I mean, it is a metaphorical eating in in one sense, but in another sense, uh, as New Testament Christians having received the institution of the Last Supper, it's very hard not to hear the Lord's Supper in, those, in that discourse. So anyway, that's just a total aside that it's, it's, it's funny that John doesn't actually include the words of institution themselves, but he talks around them. So anyway, that's beside the point. But also um, worth noting, so we get the words of institution in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then uh, St. Paul records them in 1 Corinthians 11. And that's actually one of the better places to look because there has been time that has passed since the Last Supper and when Paul is celebrating the Lord's Supper in Corinth, or talking to them about celebrating the Lord's Supper, right? so when when Paul writes to Corinth, this is after the ascension into heaven. This is after Pentecost, right? Um, so it's not like, you know, um, yeah, you know, one of the one of the things that we come up against as as Lutherans, especially in the South, in terms of the Lord's Supper, is kind of a symbolic view of the Lord's Supper, right? And the symbolic view basically says that the only real Lord's Supper that happened was at at the Last Supper, and now we're just kind of doing a representation of that whenever we celebrate it. But if that was the case, right, uh, Paul would not make such a big deal out of it as he does in 1 Corinthians 11, and say the things that he says about it in 1 Corinthians 11, right? In 1 Corinthians 11, when he introduces the words of institution, he says, I am passing on to you what was passed on to me, right? That we're gonna celebrate this together. And uh, he says some things that very much indicate a real presence understanding there. Uh, We'll get to that later. But um, 1 Corinthians 11 is interesting, right? Because you see that the early church after Pentecost is very much celebrating the breaking of the bread in the same way that Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. Right? So that, that's kind of an interesting uh, point there, just to keep in mind. So um, what's, what's also interesting is that the Gospels, being eyewitness accounts, um, record different aspects of what Jesus says. So they're all very similar, but uh, there's a few differences in words here and words there. If you go and look in Matthew 26 and in uh, Mark 14 and in Luke 22, there's uh, slight differences in the way that they um, recall the words of institution. So I actually really like what our hymnal does, and this has been the tradition of the church for centuries, is that we basically um, include everything from from the different accounts. Right, So um, if you try and find the exact phraseology of the words of institution that we use in our service today, that's not uh, in the Bible word for word, because we're actually combining the verba from Mark and from Matthew and from Luke and from Paul, right? We're actually combining them into, into one. So we have the fullest, if you will, representation of those words, right? And this is uh, this is just a simple fact, right? That if you have um, three people, if I had, if, if you know, three of you are taking notes right now, and then three of you pre- wrote down those notes and presented them uh, later on, uh, published them later on, they would all say very similar things, but they wouldn't be worded the exact way, right? So uh, that's that's just how that this works, right? So um, it is a little bit of a mystery to us exactly what phraseology jesus used when he said the words of institution but we can we can get pretty close by combining them all together right uh all right and we also recognize that they were inspired to write the words in these ways so it's not like we're missing anything that we should be having all right so uh yeah let's let's take a look at these um words of institution and then what what luther says about what is the sacrament of the altar okay so we talked about um, the bread and wine and instituted by Christ himself, right? That's the institution, and that's the physical element. Um, but what is this that Luther says about it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine and this eating and drinking? Well, that has to go to the institution, right? That's, that's what Jesus says in the verba. So what's the verba? And you, you've, you should know this pretty well, right? In remembrance of me. Okay, so what do we have there? We have take, eat, take, drink. Right. So um, part of the reality of this is that we eat and drink. This is this is what uh, Luther says, right? For us Christians to eat and to drink. That's what the Lord's Supper is: is that we eat and drink this bread and wine that's also his body and blood, we're going to get to that, right, that we eat and drink it. Um, the Roman Catholics, uh, you know, they're our friends, but but they get this wrong. The the Roman Catholics, right, they, they'll consecrate the, the elements, so they'll have the bread and wine, um, or they'll consecrate, especially the host, the bread, and then they'll put it in a, what's called a monstrance. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. Have you ever seen one of these? It's like a big, uh, fancy cross, But it's got this kind of hole in the middle. It's a little glass display case. And they put the the host inside of it. And it sits up on a stand. Um, And they'll have these little uh, chapels at a lot of Roman Catholic churches called adoration chapels. uh, Where people will go and there'll be a consecrated host in the monstrance. And people will pray before it. Right, and they'll say, look, we're praying to Jesus because Jesus' body is there. And then this is also where they have the uh, festival of the, um, what's it called? Where they march around. It's the Corpus Christi festival? Is, that what it is? Anyway, they'll have this uh, festival once a year where they'll take the monstrance and they'll parade around with it. And, you know, people bow, bow down before it and everything. And... Uh, Luther uh, and the Reformers very much wrote against this, right? That uh, this is not what Jesus meant for us to do with his body and blood, right? He didn't mean for us to to pray to it or to to worship it uh, whenever the Lord's Supper happened. And this is one of the things that was going on with these private masses in the late Middle Ages is that people were doing this to earn, they, they considered this a good work, right? And so they would do this to earn favor before God. And uh, Luther makes this big point: What did, what did Jesus give for us to do with the with his body and blood, to eat it and to drink it, right? And you'll notice uh, in the liturgy here, um, whenever we celebrate the the Lord's Supper, what what I'll do after after we're done distributing what's there is I and and maybe the elder will help me consume the rest of the elements, right? Because what is What is the Lord's Supper for us to do? It's to eat and to drink, right? And so, the clearest confession that we can make whenever we have the Lord's Supper is that we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, right? That that's what it's meant for. It's meant for us to eat and to drink. Um, And there, there's uh, nothing particularly wrong in churches where uh, maybe they put the elements back and then use them again the next week. I mean, they're still being eaten and drinking. Eat. Eaten and drunk, but um, I think it's a clear confession, right? To just every week we eat and we drink what we consecrate, right? Uh, because that's what Jesus gave us to do, right? So uh, I think that's an that's an important point. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Uh, so first of all, we get we get eating eating and drinking, right? Uh, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat." And then he said, this is my body. And then we'll kind of take them in pairs, right? So he says, this is my body and this is the New Testament in my blood, right? This is my body and this is my blood. And Lutherans are very big on this. What Jesus says is true, right? If Jesus says, this is my body and he says, this is my blood, then that's what it is and we don't have to we don't have to uh rationalize that right and there are different ways to rationalize it so um on one hand you have the uh, there you have kind of a spectrum right so you have the what we'd call the zwinglians on one hand to use a historical term which is kind of the um the symbolic view all right where the lord's supper is is totally symbolic of it just it just symbolizes jesus body and blood and then you have the reformed right that that say it's a, a spiritual presence but it's not a physical presence of jesus body and blood and then you have the right view which is the lutheran view right um, which is uh, a a real Physical presence, but it is mysterious. So I'm going to give a lot of um, clarifying words there. And uh, but then go, falling off the ditch on the other side, right? You do have the the uh, Roman Catholics who say it's a real physical presence, but um, They they believe in what they call transubstantiation, where basically they um, uh, they they we'll we'll write transubstantiation, then I'll tell you what it is. They basic instead of saying well it's a mystery we don't understand how it works, they try and explain it right, and they use um, Aristotelian philosophy basically to say that the bread and wine turn into Jesus' body and blood, and the bread and wine no longer really exist. Uh, they only look like they exist, but um, that they've actually changed substances, and they use again Aristotelian philosophy to explain this, right? So the Lutheran point is, is this, is that when Jesus says, "This is my body," that's that's all he, that's what he means. He doesn't mean this symbolizes my body, right? Just because it doesn't make sense to us that bread could be Jesus' body doesn't mean we have to rationalize it and say, oh, it's just a symbol. Um, he doesn't mean that this is just uh, spiritually my body, right? He says, this, this is my body. This is my blood. Um, and, uh, but he also doesn't um, say, this changes into my body, right? He doesn't explain how it works. It is, it is a mystery, Right. And so our our point is always go to the plain words, go to the simple words, uh, because what Jesus says is true. Right. We'll see this in the. Oh, actually, no, we're doing a, we're doing different readings um, today than we I did this morning because we're going to talk about stewardship today. But um, in the gospel reading, that's technically assigned for today. You have this uh, widow at Nain. Right. And. The, the, Jesus walks in on a funeral procession and this widow is um, in a funeral for her son that's died. And Jesus sees her and has compassion on, compassion on her. And spoiler alert, uh, he raises the, the son from the dead. And when he raises the son from the dead, what does he do? He says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the child sits up and starts speaking. That's because Jesus' words have power. Right? When Jesus speaks, when Jesus says something, those words do what he says. Right. Same thing with baptism. Right. How, how come baptism does what Jesus says it does? How, how does baptism save? It's because Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Say, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that does something. Right. Because Jesus' words are powerful. Right. Jesus' word is sharper than any two-edged sword. So when Jesus says, this is my body, that's what it is. Right? And we don't have to explain that away. We don't have to rationalize it, right? And and notice all these other attempts are to to rationalize it, right? Um, They're trying to to find a way to make it make more sense. Um, And we can talk about each one kind of individually, but uh, uh, this is what I want to point you to is that the words of institution are pretty clear, right? This is my body, this is my blood, and uh, when, when, Luther defines this, I think it's really genius, right? He just says, what is the altar? It's the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink, right? Um, It's just taking those clear words of institution and this definition of sacrament and saying, okay, what's going on here? And it's actually pretty simple. All right, so that's, uh, that's the reality of... The Lord's Supper. Um, I'm trying to think of if I want to go into that a little bit more. Uh, I think I'll leave it there unless anyone has any questions. I mean, there's a lot more I can say. Yeah.
1: I grew up Southern Baptist.
0: Right. I right. They do juice right. Every quarter. Right. Yeah. Instead of what we play, was I wrong to do that? No, I think that's actually the right decision. Um, we'll get into that with closed communion, but the uh, basic idea behind closed communion is that there's not just a vertical relationship going on, right? So when we when we commune um, right, it's the real presence So we're communing with God, right? There's this vertical heaven to earth relationship going on. The basic idea behind closed communion that we're going to talk about is that also in the Lord's Supper, there's a horizontal relationship between us going on as well and that we're actually called to be in fellowship with one another if we're going to partake of this together. So uh, that's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And um, this is actually for, it's for a couple reasons, uh, but it's for the good of our souls that we're in unity when we eat, eat and drink together. So I think that's a wise decision uh, to, um, to only commune with those you're in fellowship with. And the other thing about that, too, just as a bit of an aside, is that there's no emergency need for the Lord's Supper, right? So um, in baptism, right, we talk about like emergency baptisms, right, where you might baptize someone who, uh, you know, deathbed conversion or, or some kind of situation where someone hasn't been baptized and needs to be baptized before they die, Right, um, there's no emergency need for the Lord's Supper, right? Um, the The Bible never says that you have to have the Lord's. It doesn't attach the promise of salvation to the Lord's Supper in the way that it does to baptism, right? So, uh, baptism has this promise of salvation connected to it that we need baptism. Um, obviously, God wants us to have the Lord's Supper, but it's not an emergency. So it's not like I need to go and take communion whenever I go to church, right? Like, it's good, and it's encouraged, but it's not necessary in the same way that baptism is. So that's that's a little bit of an aside, but I find that, you know, um, that's sometimes people kind of have that issue. is like, oh, well, I, like, I need the Lord's Supper. It's like, well, it, it's actually okay. You don't always need to have it just because it's being offered, so... Yep. Um, when I first uh, I think I'm it a you know, long time ago sure. you all <laughs> before me even. <laughs> uh, communion in the Lutheran churches were given once a month maybe yeah so it was changed, the so frequency of know. communion yeah So, so, before it was, you know, you had to go and
1: announce to the pastor before the Sunday, the week before. Yeah. But there was just a lot of changes that have been made, let's say, how many years? 70, 80? 100,
0: yeah. Um, so, that's kind of the nature of history, is that people will um, forget things and then rediscover things and therefore practices will change over time. But I'll give you the broader scope of history, which hopefully will help answer this question. So the broader scope of history is that um, basically from the early church all the way up until uh, through the Reformation – Churches were practicing the Lord's Supper every week, right? So you even see this in Acts, in Acts two, when the churches are gathering. What are the main purposes that the church is gathering for? Acts two forty-two. It's to listen to the apostles' teaching. That's that's the sermon, right? For the prayers, that's prayers, right? Um, for the fellowship, which is to gather together with other Christians, and the breaking of the bread. It's the Lord's Supper. Right. So in, in the early church, um, and we know this very clearly from the early church fathers as well, is that they're practicing it every week. right? And then very much so in the Middle Ages as well. In fact, you have, like I mentioned earlier, you had these uh, Roman Catholic priests doing private masses constantly. So all throughout the week, they're practicing communion. And then um, the what really slowed it down was when, so Lutherans continued in Europe to practice communion um, weekly after the Reformation. Now there were, so a couple things. There were um, non-Lutherans that uh, took a more symbolic view. So the Reformed and the Zwinglians, um, just Zwingli was a guy who, the first guy who argued for symbolic view. So that's why it's called Zwinglianism, right? Uric, Uric Zwingli. It's kind of fun to say. Um, anyway, the Zwinglians and the Reformed uh, stopped practicing it so often because they had a lesser view of it. right? When Lutherans came to America, there was a shortage of... pat. We talked about this with confession and absolution. Same thing. There was a shortage of pastors and uh, Lutherans had to... And a shortage of uh, L- German resources. And so there were a lot of churches that just could not practice the Lord's Supper as often. And so it became, um, and so they took on a more Reformed or Zwinglian practice of not practicing the Lord's Supper as often. That, in some places, was once a month, in other places twice a month, in other places four times a year. Um, Those seem to be the kind of common numbers that can't, and because... Of course, people are. This is the way people are, right? They're going to make a schedule, so it's like they're not going to just do it randomly. It's going to be on a schedule. So, um, so those were the kind of common uh, things that became common. Uh, there have always been Lutheran churches in America that still have had it every week, um, but at different times throughout history, it's been less common and, and then and, and then more common. So. Um, as as that kind of took place, in a lot of places, that just became the norm, right? And and then what we can see over the last, kind of what you're talking about over the last hundred years, is that, wait, hey, all our churches have pastors now, for the most part. I mean, you're always going to have some vacancies. But our churches have, have pastors now. We can probably do this more often. And so if I've talked to pastors that are older than me, and they're, all, like, I, I've talked to a lot of them that say, yeah, we moved our congregation from once, once a month to twice a month, right? And now my generation of pastors has, has I think, been moving, um, and by my generation I mean pastors with probably within the last 10 to 15 years and, and kind of guys my age, a lot of what we're doing is moving from twice a month to every week. But there is a theological reason for that. Okay, So Lutherans theologically are motivated to have it as often as possible because, one, we know what it is, right? It it is really Jesus' body and blood with us. Um, It's really the presence of Christ with us. And um, actually, I'm going to skip ahead. Um, If you look, the Catechism actually teaches this. So in the Christian Questions and Answers, in in, uh, question 19, so this is almost the very end of the catechism, what should admonish and encourage a Christian to receive the sacrament frequently? And then Luther answers, first, both the command and the promise of Christ the Lord, second, his own pressing need, because of which the command and encouragement and promise are given. And then question 20, but what should you you do if you are not aware of this need and have no hunger and thirst for the sacrament? And this is... Luther tells a joke here, which is pretty funny. Um, he says, to such a person, no better advice can be given than this. First, he should touch his body to see if he still has flesh and blood. And then he should believe what the scriptures say of it in Galatians 5 and Romans 7. Second, he should look around to see whether he is still in the world. And remember that there will be no lack of sin and trouble And scriptures say in John 15:16 and 1 John 2 and 5. Third, he will certainly have the devil also around him who with his lying and murdering day and night Well, let him have no peace within or without, as the scriptures picture him in John 8 and 16, 1 Peter 5, Ephesians 6, and 2 Timothy 2. So basically what Luther says is, um, you should try and receive the sacrament as often as you can because you need it. Because you struggle against sin with your flesh and blood. You're in the world and you're constantly tempted by sin. And the devil's trying to murder you day and night. And so you should try and be near Christ as much as possible, right? And you should have the forgiveness of sins as much as possible. And in the, um, in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, I believe, which is one of the confessional documents that um, LCMS pastors uh, subscribe to in their ordination, he, uh, Melanchthon there, who writes that document, says that we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day, which means every Sunday. Right, And so theologically, um, it's pretty clear that Lutherans um, prefer a weekly celebration. But historically, because of a lack of pastors at a certain time and because of the way churches were set up and then also people's memories, um, that hasn't always been the case. Now, the announcing thing is a little bit different because... um, the announcing thing goes back to the confession and absolution that we talked about the last couple weeks where well, I wasn't here last week, I guess, but a couple weeks before that, um, where, uh, part of, part of this idea of closed communion, which we'll get to was that, um, people, the pastor knew that the people coming to his table were repentant and that they, uh, we're not living in open sin or something like that. And basically the idea that the pastor knew who was coming to his table, and so people would announce. And that has kind of fallen out of practice um, because private confession absolution has fallen out of practice, which is how people used to announce. And there was a while there where we kind of, private confession absolution fell out of practice, but people would still announce and that's actually what, um, I guess we don't really have them here, but if you've ever been to Lutheran churches that have um, cards that you fill out every Sunday, you know what I'm talking about, like a registration card, that's that's uh, that, that's that kind of what announcing turned into. Yeah. The church I transferred from up north, um, a larger church, three, yeah. three uh, services a week. Yeah. Yeah. But not at every yeah. And but we had cards when I was young that were filled out with your name and everything, and then you checked. Yeah, if you, communing, yeah. You checked if you were commuting, yeah. You check the box if you're gonna commune. Yeah, that's pretty common. Yeah. Was that, was, that, was that? to keep track? Of- yeah, it was to keep track of who was commuting and how many people. Um, there are a lot of practical. Benefits to it, right? Like if you know about how many people commune, it's easier to prepare communion for one. But was it also because the pastor would want to
1: know if someone
0: was never communing? Or- yeah, yeah. There's that as well. Like it, it also has to do with pastoral care. Right. Like, okay. um, it's it's a like it's honestly just easier in smaller churches because like I just know, right? Like, I I can. On Monday morning, I can sit down and track attendance and be like, this person was here, this person communed, this person took the common cup. Like, you know, just know. But it's harder to do that in a larger, larger church for sure. So, and that that's the other practical thing. So there there are sometimes you get that on the frequency of the Lord's Supper question. Um, one of the things that happens sometimes is uh, churches don't want to do communion every week because it's more work, right? That means the altar guild has to be busier, right? Um, but um, and then sometimes people will say, t- "Tell me if you've heard this before." Um, that uh, it's not good to do communion every week because it's not as special if you have it every week. Has anyone ever heard that? That's, mm-hmm. if I, yeah.
1: When you were talking about this ringlet view and how they did it less because it wasn't like as important so in the Southern Baptist church that I grew up in, believing that it was just symbolic, we didn't do it every week. But it was because, at least I was taught, that it would start to lack significance in people's minds. It would just become just a repetitive uh, right. uh, ritual. And so by not having it every week, that kept it
0: special. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's a... Um it's kind of a silly argument because there are plenty of things that we do that we do regularly that just because they're significant, they're still significant, right? And uh, (laughs) this is a bad joke, but um, I had a pastor one time in response to that argument, uh, I, I heard him say this response, which was, well, as soon as you're willing to say that about steak and sex, then that we'll have communion less often, right? But no one says that, right? <laughs> um, anyway, that's a bad, probably a bad response, but um, it's true, right? Like those things are still significant, even though you might do them more often or you know regularly, every week, even. Um, no one's gonna complain about having steak every week, so yeah, it's it's a good joke, um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just yes, it is, it is a, it is significant and it is special what happens every week at communion, right? It is significant and special that Jesus comes to us in His body and blood. That doesn't mean we should do it less often, right? I mean, we're in the presence of Jesus every week anyway. But uh, anyway, okay, that's the frequency question. So good question. Um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Well, the, so, I was looking at these, these questions in, the, in section, the, the last section, Yeah. and it says, what should we do when
0: we eat his body and drink his blood, question 15, Yep. because we should remember,
1: proclaim his death and the shedding, Yep. so can you, can you talk a little more, what's the, I get what you're saying, that Jesus just says, this is my body, and this is my blood, so what, what's the significance of that? We're talking about in the future. It's in remembrance, and this is we're proclaiming. We should, the answer to 15 is we should remember and proclaim his death in the shedding of his blood. So I'm just curious, what's the? Why is that important to make a big deal that it is his body and blood versus something else, um, versus just. Versus just symbolic. I mean, because it's not saying that that blood then uh, magically or, or spiritually. Sorry. I thought I was passing a beyond judgment on it.
0: <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> It's, why the, why the, big, the big deal there? About so it's two different, it's two different questions. Um, what the body and blood do is a different question than what should we do when we drink his body and blood, eat and drink his body and blood. So, so Luther asks, and that question is asking, what should we do when we eat his body and drink his blood, not does not what does his body and blood do for us? Okay, so,
1: that, let me, so that's the question there.
0: We're gonna to get to that next week. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the benefit is coming next. Yeah, the benefit's coming next. Okay. Um, so that's, it's, uh, it's time, it's 3.45, but um, we are getting there, I promise. But that, um, and just, just so you're aware, the, um, what Luther is referencing there when he says we should remember and proclaim, one is the words of institution, this do in remembrance of me, which we're gonna talk about what that means, um, because that is an often an argument for the symbolic view, as he says, remembrance. Not but I, I actually think that the remembrance proves real presence, not some symbolism. But that has to do with the context of the Passover, so I'm gonna get there. But um
1: that's like, that's like doing something as memorial to somebody who's still alive,
0: right? you don't really do that. Right? Yeah, so uh it it has to do with the the way that the that the Jews, that the uh, old testament Christians um and and Jesus and his disciples himself thought about the idea of remembering something which is not how we think about remembering so there's a context issue there but we'll get to that the other thing that Je- that Luther um not Jesus that Luther is referencing in that question is in 1 Corinthians 11 I think it's verse 16 is when he says um he gives the words of institution and then he says as often as we do this we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So um, there's, that's what Luther's talking about there. So we'll get, to, we'll talk about that and what that means too. So, um, all right, we'll leave it there. Any other final questions, comments, just so I know for next week what to pick up on? All right, I'll try and remember all those things for next week. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all your good gifts to us and especially the gift of your Lord's Supper with which you come to us with your body and blood, to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray that you would keep this gift before us, and we pray that you would be with us today in worship as we seek to receive you. Bless the preaching of your word and the administration of your sacraments, that they may be for the good of those who receive them. We pray this to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.